Hi, Carrie. I am having a complete fangirl moment right now. So let me oh. just like sit in your glow. I am a certified Gottman therapist, but we've never even talked about it on the podcast and we're in our second season. So when I had the opportunity to talk to you as a way to introduce the listeners that we have to what it is that I am so enamored with and the Institute that I kind of really hold in such a very, very high regard. I'm so happy to be able to have you on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So you are the director of research at the Gottman Institute. So first of all, tell us how does one get a job as a director of research? That sounds like you're very, very smart and that you have lots of credentials and lots of letters behind your name. Well, I do, but uh, uh, I really don't know how you get a job like this. I wasn't looking for it. Um, John and Julie, uh, I got to know John and Julie through the years and worked with them very fairly closely uh, at their uh, retreats in their home that they do several times a year. And uh, one day they just asked me if I would be willing to be their research director. Wow. Mm -hmm. I would have been knocked over by a feather if they would have said that to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They liked the way that I did therapy. uh, And I did have a background in uh, research. I put myself through undergraduate and graduate school doing research as a research assistant. So um, I really had a love for that and a passion for John's research. And I kept thinking, you know, when John retires, who's going to do the research? Who's going to do the research? And I've yeah. asked that question for years and I didn't know it was going to be me. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> Well, I am glad that you're here because you are a bright spot. I don't, uh, I didn't tell you this before, but when I was doing my dissertation for my doctorate, I used one of your articles. So, and you authored one of them for your research. So I've always been uh, sort of looking forward to meeting you and telling you, thank you for help helping me pass my dissertation. I, oh, I really, my- <laughs> I really appreciate it. So for those of us that are new to the podcast or apparently new to the planet and don't know who the Gottman method is. Tell us a little bit about it. You know, why are John and Julie so important to the world of couples therapy? Because they are one of the top 10, like, very prominent reasons that we even have couples therapy as a, as a theory these days that's helpful to clients. Talk about it a little bit. Uh, yes, John uh, has done research on couples, I think, for about 50 years now, um, and he actually studied couples who were healthy as well as couples who were uh, really struggling. So, you know, before he did this research, we kind of thought that, um, you know, that our whole reason and, and basis of doing couples therapy was based on couples who were not healthy, right? Um, they were in crisis, they were struggling. And so we really didn't know what healthy relationships looked like. We just thought they looked like the opposite of the relationships that came into our offices. Uh, And in fact, that's not true. So that's pretty exciting. Um, And in some ways, there's not a whole lot of differences between couples who are healthy and couples who are struggling. Um, They all miscommunicate. They all have conflict. Um, 
So there are some key differences, and John learned what those differences were. Uh, in part, um, the healthy couples repaired. Mm. And they repaired quickly. And so they they knew the importance of repair, and they also knew how to let the repairs be effective. Mm. So they repaired often and quickly. So they didn't let things build up and fester and things like that. Um, but they still had basically about the same amount of miscommunication. So, so what I'm hearing you say then is what you found out is that conflict was normal. It didn't mean that there was dysfunction happening in the relationship, but the masters of relationships, as we like to call them, right, in the Gottman method, who are accidentally doing it well, they felt this urgency or this need or this it was important to them to not let it stay there. They weren't avoiding it. They weren't, you know, stonewalling with each other. They were getting in there and figuring out how to manage it. And they may not have always done it perfectly, but the desire was there. Right. That's correct. And so so you took the techniques at the Institute that they were doing very well, right? These little unicorns of the world who accidentally had these wonderful relationships and you turned them into a couples therapy. But you didn't just stop there, right? Well, actually, Julie Gottman is the one that did that. Okay. So an interesting thing, if it weren't for Julie Gottman, we would have probably never heard of John Gottman uh, because John was a researcher. Uh, he didn't help couples. Uh, he just studied them. And Julie was a clinical psychologist, and she was really interested in helping people. So Julie said, why don't we take these findings of yours and use them to help people? It took some convincing for John to do that because the best predictor of getting a divorce was going to couples therapy. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, they're in trouble in the first place. Right, right, right. Sometimes therapists, while we are very compassionate, we may not understand what to do with a couple in the the room. Absolutely. How to help them. Uh, So so Julie and and John together came up with these interventions to actually help couples, uh, help them have more productive conversations, help them to have the difficult conversations that they needed to have, right? So they provided kind of a, a semi-structure for them, um, guidelines for them to kind of keep them on track, uh, to repair relationships, to talk about their ongoing differences. Uh, They also uh, helped them learn how to tune back into each other, uh, to be more emotionally connected, uh, to rebuild connection, right? And deepen the connections when they have them. So Um, they learned that there were three systems that really needed to be healthy in relationships. That was another interesting finding. The friendship system, okay? So we need to learn how to manage conflicts, but we also need to remain good friends. And then we also need to have a healthy kind of shared meaning system. And that system is about of our values and our beliefs and our philosophy of life. Um, It's about the way in which we connect with each other, kind of our rituals and family traditions and that kind of thing. So we learned that all of those things needed to be healthy in these relationships. 
And you also studied the four patterns of communication that were detrimental to relationships as well, right? Right. Can you talk yeah. about those? Sure. Yeah, there were four, actually four things that the Gottmans found that would really kill a relationship. Um, and that's good news because once we know what it is, uh, then we can work to fix it, right? Yeah. And so the four things that will kill a relationship are criticism, which is using the you word, you always, you never. If that's happening, it's critical. Because we're already like shrinking into the back of our chairs because we know there isn't going to be like, you are so awesome at the end. It's going to be like, you are a disappointment at the end. That's right. Um, Or there's something wrong with you, right? Um, So that leads to the second killer of a relationship. John calls these the four horsemen. Um, I'm not quite so colorful. I usually just refer to them (laughs) as the four killers. Um, So... But the second one is defensiveness. Yeah. And that is kind of a response to criticism. Yeah. Now, it could also lead out. Sometimes people are not being critical, but if we grew up in a critical environment, we would have a tendency to be automatically defensive. So we might hear things as a criticism that maybe weren't. So we might start off being defensive. Um because it means we're going to get in trouble, like maybe we did when we were growing up, that that means I did something wrong. People of authority or people who give me love and affection are going to withdraw it because I disappointed them. So it's an automatic response. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's got several forms like, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it wasn't really my fault. Kind of, I'm the innocent victim here. Or we can get kind of really creative and do a counter criticism mm, mm-hmm. oh, yeah well you do it too mm, right you, you do something worse right. right so it's like uh it got turned on us all of a sudden um and I do think that people are just when they are critical it's not that they're trying to do something nasty or horrible they're trying to let their needs be known and how they're feeling yeah but we haven't been taught how to do that in a way in which our partner can really hear that for us. So um, do you so think that happens because we try to deny our needs for so long in relationships because we don't want to like be too needy or whatever that comes up for someone is like, well, I, I shouldn't really ask you to like pick up your socks off the floor. Cause that's just, I should deal with it. Those are small things. Is there a buildup of when, because I'm not asking for my needs, that criticism is just sort of the end result sometimes? You know, I don't know that there's a, an easy answer to that. I think that's certainly one possibility. I think there can be many possibilities about, you know, how we come to be, you know, but certainly um, we probably don't feel like we have a right to ask for what we want. Um, that would make a lot of sense, Right. Um, so criticism and defensiveness are usually two of those killers that we see really often in relationships. Yes. Now there's a third one that is, uh, actually worse than all of them altogether. And that's called contempt. Um, John referred to that as sulfuric acid for a relationship. So it's really deadly, right? 
uh, and there are an unlimited forms of contempt. So it can be name calling, it can be sarcasm, it can be um, a facial expression like rolling your eyes. Um, it's any way that we tell our partner, I'm superior to you and you are defective. Okay. So, and if you think about that, if I'm superior to you, then when we make these comparisons, um, you know, well, if, you know, I do it this way, or I don't ever do the things that you do, uh, well, that's, that's contempt, right? Uh, so, and then the last killer, or horseman, is stonewalling. And stonewalling is shutting down, not talking, giving your partner the silent treatment. Um, if you ask the person who is being stonewalled what their partner, what's the message that their partner is giving them, they usually say something like, they just don't care. Okay. They don't care about me. They're, it's like I'm not even worth listening to. Um, that's not always actually what's going on inside of the stonewaller, but that's the message to them. So the good news is that all of these have antidotes. And these antidotes are very simple in theory. Okay. I like and, that you said theory, because getting yeah. people to actually embrace <laughs> and put to practice is the challenge, right? Yes. Yes. Very difficult to practice just because it's a, it's a mind shift. Uh, so the antidote to criticism is what we call a softened startup. Okay. Now a softened startup does not have the word you in it anywhere, preferably. Okay. So instead of saying something like you always leave your clothes everywhere, you never pick anything up. Uh, it would be saying, I get annoyed when I see clothes on the floor. I would appreciate it if they would get picked up. So it talks about how I feel annoyed and about what situation, the clothes on the floor, and then what I need. And do that kind of in a, a you know, an appreciative tone. I would really appreciate it if they would get picked up. Okay. Because it's so much easier to hear, right? Yes. It is because what you're saying is, is that if I say you're such a slob, you never pick up the other horseman, the defensiveness is going to, oh no, I need to protect my character to you. This is the person that I love the most. And if you don't think that I'm a good steward of our household, that might mean that you don't love me as much. And maybe you're not aware of the cognitive process that's happening, but you're not feeling emotionally safe. So you can't hear that in any other way than to protect yourself. It's not because you're a defect or you should be worried about your character. It's because you're in distress about what it means to your relationship. Right. And the end result of that is that the, the speaker, the one who is making this, they're wanting to get their needs met, does not get heard. So they lost their listener by the way in which they said it, right? So a softened startup hopefully helps them keep their listener. 
and if they're not getting defensive and if it's it's really you know I like to I talk a lot about keeping it inside of your own body um if you can keep it inside of your own body rather than putting it into your partner's body um things are going to go better right that's also really hard to do and we all hope that we have influence on our partners. So of course, if you're in distress, let me stop the world and like pay attention to your distress. I may not be able to do anything about it, but I certainly don't want to give you the impression that I don't care about your distress. And it's so much easier for us to hold that space if I believe that there isn't something that's being demanded of me. So I've got to shift around and figure out what to do. Correct. Yes. So the, the second horseman is defensiveness. And the antidote to defensiveness is accepting responsibility. Which is makes all of my clients cringe when I first say that to them. So I always say with a little asterisk next to it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, but it's like, you know, what would it be like to say, or to, you know, you know what, I have a bad habit of just dropping my clothes on the floor, I could work on that. Yes. Okay. Now, that can break down if I've raised three teenagers um, and every one of them would say, oops, my bad, (laughs) and not change their behavior. Ah, so I acknowledge that you don't like that behavior, but anyways, I'm moving on down the road. Yes, and in some ways, that's kind of like a blow off. Oh, Oh, sorry, oops, my bad, you know, and then they would pick them up, but then are still going to be on the floor right. next time you turn around right so it's like so then it kind of starts feeling you know you can see where the person who had the need becomes more critical and that could also lead to contempt right because my need hasn't been addressed for so long or it's been yes. dismissed or it's been minimized or our favorite term these days gaslighted <laughs> yeah right that um so um and i yeah i guess i have a a, to me gaslighting is something a little bit more intentional than that it's really kind of saying no i never leave my clothes on the floor you're imagining that you're crazy Mm -hmm. so to me gaslighting is a you know a little bit more escalated than you know just kind of blowing someone off um, and that's that's the way, you know, I would feel when my kids would do that, you know, oops, my bad. That's a, it's a blow off, right? Um, but they're not being kind of malicious or dubious about it. Okay, good. Because that is such a popular phrase that comes into our therapy rooms these days. It is. Um, and gaslighting is really a form of psychological abuse. Um, and I see a difference between, uh, now, you know, gaslighting can be a form of content, you know, by saying you're crazy, that's certainly true. Um, but, you know, that's a, it really is kind of telling the partner that their reality is uh, wrong. Uh, so that, you would say that for clients that are saying that they have a partner that they ask for their needs and their partner gaslights them that that's less of a defensiveness and then they're heading more towards being in contempt. Yes. 
Good, because that is such a big topic in our rooms these days, right? We're also hearing, oh, my partner's a narcissist and they don't, you know, they don't care and they're being contemptuous and it's, it's getting more complex and there's more layers of it. So what you're speaking of is simple in theory, but there's all these different pieces and parts that clients are confused about. They don't know what is malicious because they are no longer able to hold each other in a positive perspective because of these behaviors. And so they're coming in distress. They're accusing their partners of having these mental health issues or these power shifts. And it, like you're saying, it could just be over time. I've been worn down by not having my needs heard or acknowledged or, you know, other than a, my bad. Right. And so you just keep spinning and wondering why nobody's listening to you and what are you supposed to do about it? Right. So that's when we would need to help them have a deeper conversation. Um, and to be honest, I think a lot of these conversations go awry because we're not tuning into the emotional affect. Okay. Um, we're not really expressing how we feel. And we're not really expressing if there are some, some triggers from our past that get you know, kind of the um, kind of reenact our family of origin responses. And so then we go right back to being five years old. Correct. So, but we're not talking about those kinds of things. It's like, just pick up your clothes already. (laughs) Um, And we're not talking about the triggers that have uh, been brought back up for us. Um, So part of what the Gottman method does is to help couples have those conversations without using terms like you're a narcissist, you know, which would be contempt and things like that. So, you know, let's just talk about, you know, how this affects me at a deep emotional level and what it feels like to not be, you know, to ask for something that I needed and to never have that longing fulfilled, right? So, you know, it's a very lonely place to be in a relationship. And, and so it, it's asking our clients to then do something that feels very vulnerable as well, right? Yeah. Because there's a fear that just like their family of origin, that maybe their family of origin wasn't purposely ignoring their needs because they didn't know they were being asked, but it does double down on those triggers that if I am vulnerable and my need isn't met, then I've added insult to injury. Right. And so then I, I, I'm going to start spinning out in their relationship. Right. Uh, So we need to help them have those conversations in a way that it brings emotional safety to both parties. Right. So that's, in some ways, that's why we want to interrupt these four killers of a relationship, these four horsemen. Um, and that brings me to the last horseman, which is stonewalling, which is the shutting down and not talking. Um, the antidote to that one is calming down, soothing yourself. Um, And the reason that it is, is because if you took the heart rate of somebody who is stonewalling, the chances are that that person's heart rate has shot way up, maybe over 100 beats per minute. 
And when people's heart rates go up that high, it's past the intrinsic level of the heart. And so the heart has to start beating and pumping faster. And when it does, it pumps and releases, causes stress hormones to be released in our brain and in our stomach. And these stress hormones cause our frontal lobes to shut down, along with a lot of other things like our digestive system, our kidneys. So, you know, but our, our frontal lobes is where our logic and our communication skills live. So when those go offline, we've got nothing to talk with. Uh, and if we tried, we would not talk in complete sentences. And we would be probably repeating ourselves, saying the same thing over and over again. So we don't feel like we can get our point across. We probably aren't getting our point across. Um, and our thought is, I've got to get out of here. Like, I, I can't do this. And so a lot of times people will say things that maybe they don't really mean, like, I'm done. I'm done. What does I'm done mean? So the other person freaks out. What are done with me? Done with the relationship? Done with the conversation? What do you mean? Um, so now we've got two, two people freaking out in the room. Uh, and so they may not want that person to stop talking. No, stay here. Let's work this out. Let's talk about this. But the other person needs a time out. They just need a break. They need to get their frontal lobes back online. So if they could have the opportunity to calm down, and that only takes about 20 or 30 minutes of not dwelling on the thing that you're not upset. going and writing a note about what I'm going to say when I come back to Carrie and releasing her. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's not preparing for round two. Uh, it is getting your mind off of what you're upset about. Um, so uh, once that can happen, then they can come back and maybe repair what happened. Um, so. So those are the four horsemen of the apostle. When they get flooded like that, mm -hmm. we use the word flooded in the Gottman world. Yeah. And do you think that there's something, because this is something I've never understood. So maybe I need to do more research or read more of your articles. There's something that says, don't leave though. For a lot of my clients, it's like, but I got to stay to show you that I really love you, right? And so we're overriding some of the instinctual, like, I don't know if this is a society message. I don't know if this is like a parenting hand-me-down, but a lot of my clients are like, no, no, no. I recognize I'm flooded because when I start talking about it, they're like, oh yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do all those things. And they're like, but I'm not going to leave. In fact, I'm going to throw myself in front of the door when you try to leave because there is this sense that I'm being abandoned or those old childhood wounds are coming up. And so what I love most about the theory of our break rituals that we do is you're actually doing your relationship a favor by leaving because yes. you can't have a real conversation to your point. That's when I say things like, you're just like your mother, right? Or I want a divorce because I have got to get out of here. So that's that piece that we I think is just the most beautiful thing that I've learned is I'm also going to let you know when I'm going to come back, right? So that if I do have those triggers from childhood, if I do have abandonment issues or whatever it is, then I can start to self-soothe versus waiting bated breath by the door for you to come back because I don't think we're going to be okay. Right. Yes. 
Um, it does feel like abandonment when somebody leaves, especially and especially if they have a history of that, you know, or someone leaving and maybe never coming back. So we have to be sensitive to people's histories. Um, but like you said, if they can take a, they need to be able to take a break. And if they can't leave the uh, premises, whatever premises those are, hopefully they can go into another room um, so that they don't, they're just away from each other for 20 to 30 minutes. Um, you know, sometimes it can happen when people are driving in a car where yeah. you can't just <laughs> leave. Pull um, over and get out. No. But, but maybe one person could put some headphones on or you could turn up the radio and just agree not to talk for the next 30 minutes um, and listen to the radio. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that people can calm down and soothe themselves. The best way to do that is to talk about it before it happens. Here's our plan. So in therapy, when we do therapy with couples, one of the first things I like to do is to develop a ritual, a, a flooding ritual. Okay, so, you know, we call the time out, then who's going to do this and who's going to do that? We really prescribe it. Where are you going to go? For how long? What kinds of things are you going to try? And who's going to make the decision about when we come back? Is the person who's flooded, are they going to be the one to come back and re-engage? Um, or is it going to be either party? But we have to have some rules of re-engagement as well. And maybe after 30 minutes, we're ready to come back together and be in the same room. But it still may be a little bit too emotionally raw for us to talk about. And that's okay. We just come back together and say, I'm ready, you know, to re-engage, but I'm not ready to process this yet. Let's do it tomorrow. And that's okay. Yeah. Okay to do that. Um, because, because we, we know we're going to come back and do repair like the successful couples do. Yes. And that is one thing that is uh, a necessity. And that is the follow through that if you say you're going to process it tomorrow, then you process it tomorrow. You make the commitment to yourself, to your partner, to your relationship that you will do this. For this. It's too easy to just not talk about it. So many of my clients are like, I am terrified to bring it up again because I'm afraid that we'll take the bandage off and go back into three days of not talking to each other. Right, yes. Uh, people are afraid of that. And if, if they're gonna be going into round two, it makes a lot of sense, or round 22, <laughs> um, which happens, right? Um, so to give them... Uh, some guidelines about how to have that conversation, even a, you know, a repair. Um, Gottman's created this beautiful tool called the aftermath of a fight. The best. Uh, it is the best. I love it um, because it it has this you know structure to where you, you do this step and then you do the next step and then you do the next step. So it requires that the couple slow down, right? And talk about their emotions and has a way that, you know, there's a one speaker at a time and one listener at a time. So people aren't talking on top of each other and trying to get their point across. Their time will come 
they will be able to get their point across. But right now it's time to listen. Um, so that can be really helpful. For and the beautiful part of that intervention, I mean, all the interventions are beautiful. I'm a, I'm a big fan. But the beautiful part is that the part my clients are not doing at home is if we find ourselves in this place again, because we will, right? because it's just going to be something different. If it's not the cheese knife, it's going to be where you left your shoes, right? right. What are we going to do differently? That's not what couples are doing at home. They are just like, okay, well, can we like hug it out and go have dinner and like pretend it didn't happen, right? And so we are like advocating that you have to anticipate that this is going to come up again. It may not look the same. How are you going to have a different outcome for the same old problem? And that's the beauty of repair. Right. Uh, I think it's also helpful just to process it and what happened and how I felt about it. Because if we don't, uh, if we don't go to and do that repair part of it, it's sweeping it under the rug and it's like, we'll just let it go. But we are not good at letting it go. What we are good at is storing it up. Yep. That's one. And that's two. And that's three. And then, then the rug, you can't just sweep it under that rug anymore because you're tripping over the rug. Yeah. Right. And we have to move to another house because we can't get past the hump under the rug. Well, and that's a tragedy because that's usually a separation, you know, of the relationship. And we haven't healed and we haven't learned from the mistakes that went maybe that we participated in from the first relationship. And then we bring those with us into the next relationship, right? Yes. So we'll, uh, we are the common denominator in all of our relationships. Correct. Now, other people can do contribute, uh, and, and, you know, we need to acknowledge that, and we need to let them know, you know, in what way they contributed, because sometimes people don't even know, right? It's like stepping on a landmine. What happened? Um, and usually there's some history to that, maybe even before this relationship ever even occurred, right? The, yeah have these enduring vulnerabilities that we're very sensitive to. Um, so we need to, that's part of knowing your partner. And when we know our partner and know those vulnerabilities, then we can work really hard at honoring them and protecting them, right? Um, so that's- I love that piece. My job is not to find your push point so that I can like have access to your control panel when we're in a fight. It's so that I can have some sensitivity around the things that you have some vulnerability about. Yes. Beautiful. And the more deeply you know someone, um, you know, when someone opens up and shares their emotions with you, that is the best gift that they could ever give you. Um, well said, Carrie. Yeah. And you know, so the person receiving that needs to be aware of the honor in which they are given because their partner just handed them a potential loaded gun, right? And we have to protect that at all costs. Um, not to ourselves, but, but we need to be really protective of our partner's vulnerabilities um, or they can never feel emotionally safe with us. Yeah, I like that because I think so many of us assume that because we're in a relationship, we're entitled and expecting vulnerability, but that's something that's earned and to your point is a gift 
I'm not required to share that with anyone. It's if we do our work and create a safe space for each other, then I start to believe that you want to know who I am versus demanding to know who I am. Right. So you're an expert and I want to get your opinion on this. One of the reasons I want to do the podcast is I want to help minimize the stigma around going to couples therapy. I'm still so surprised that, you know, individual therapy is like going to the spa. Right? It's like I, some of my clients will put, you know, like, oh, it's, it's, it's a self-care day. I'm going to therapy. And yet my couples are like, oh my God, it's like going to the dentist or there's something wrong with us. And they're not having conversations with their friends or family members that they're into couples therapy what do you think it is that's still creating this stigma around going to couples therapy? I think there is pretty multifaceted, to be honest. Um, I think that some people, well, a lot of times people only go to couples therapy when they're in deep trouble. Um, so it is kind of like going to the dentist when you need a root canal um, because it's like people are in a very the couple is in a very fragile state. Uh, they don't want everybody in the world to know their fragile state. Um, so, you know, let's just keep that to ourselves. Um, it also, I think people maybe think that there might be something wrong with them. We don't know how to do relationships. Uh, so there's something wrong with me. I'm bad at relationships. Um, and uh, an, another part, uh, I think is because some people have had bad experiences in couples therapy. Um, there have, sadly, there have been couples that I have seen in which, uh, the therapist allied with one partner against the other partner. So they were telling the partner everything that they were doing wrong, um, and so it's, it was very painful and shaming. And I wouldn't want to go to couples therapy if that was going to be my experience, right? Um, you brought up an important point, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that you did it because I think a lot of clients come in assuming that my job is to be the arbitrator <laughs> of like, so it's you. Yep, you, you, you're the one with all the problems done. Thank you. See, see you later. It's, right. it, that is not our, our role. Our, mm -hmm. The relationship in couples therapy is our client. Yes. And I think in, um, so a good couples therapist is a couples therapist that helps facilitate a conversation between the couple. So we're not interjecting what, you know, they should do or how they should behave. Uh, so we're not in sitting in judgment of them. We're helping facilitate and we're helping them draw out their emotions and tell their partner about their emotions and tell their partner about their experience and what's important to them and why. Um, and have each partner and, and to really honor and validate the perspective of each partner, not just one partner because there are at least two sides to every story yep. and they are both valid. Um, but I think some people believe that if my partner is right, that means I'm wrong. Uh, and so that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. And it's, 
really pretty liberating when uh, they can hear that they have a valid point and so does their partner. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the really important pieces of the Gottman Method is we are very much making sure that each partner is validated and each partner has their own subjective reality and neither of you is wrong, right? And if we're going to stay in that perspective, we're not going to make the progress that we want to make, right? And so that's exactly what I was hoping that you would talk about. So kind of leading into that, I know that the Institute has said in their research, the average couple waits six years before they come to therapy, right? So that has been research in the past. Um, I think it's important to uh, to share that the most recent research that was done by Bill Doherty is that the average couple waits anywhere from 18 to 24 months. So they're coming to therapy, and, and it could be that over the course of time, people have decided and, and learned more, and we've got to get this, you know, we're not just going to survive this relationship, we're going to try to make it better. So um, that was a, a, the original research that was done was a master's um, thesis um, by one of Cliff Notarius's uh, students. And we've tried to find that, that thesis, and we have not been able to, the one that says six years. Uh, but we do have access to Bill Doherty's uh, more recent journal article that says, you know, about two years. So do you think COVID is influencing that because we are less healthy as couples as a result of this pandemic, it appears. I think uh, Doherty's work predated COVID, but I think COVID was, um, you know, brought to light a lot of relationship struggles because people were thrown into a pressure cooker. So instead of having all of the outlets and friends and, and resources and just getting out and doing things, you know, they were confined in close quarters and that just kind of exacerbated. I think it made a lot of things better in couple relationships. So some couples said that was, you know, a beautiful gift for us. And other couples decided that, you know, we can't do this anymore. So, um, in a way, I think it was a mixed bag, but it brought to light, I think, the importance of relationships and because that might be all you've got. Uh, so, you know, there are primary relationships and they need to be functional and good for us. We didn't have as many distractions to exist right. so that we could survive them. Now we're like, oh, we need to pay attention to them. They are right. a crucial part of who we are. Okay, yes. so for anyone who's out there who's on the fence about going to couples therapy, I brought the master in so that you can make the plea as the ambassador of all of us couples therapists. Why should they pick up the phone and call a Gottman certified therapist to get some support? The Gottman certified therapist is going to have a lot of training, uh, especially a certified Gottman therapist. Um, not only have certified Gottman therapists gone through three levels of training. Um, they've also had to work with a consultant. They've had to video review, video record all of their work for that consultant to observe. Uh, and once that consultant said, okay, you're good enough, you can submit these videos, 
then they get reviewed by an anonymous video reviewer. And I am one of those, uh, so I'm a gatekeeper. Um, and, and certified Gottman therapists have to pass four videos saying that they, you know, uh, they can do this work. So they have to demonstrate to us that they can do this work um, before we uh, certify them. And so we feel pretty confident in our therapists. Um, and we have stressed to our therapists the importance of scientific research um, and staying true to the method, uh, using the interventions. Um, and the importance of, you know, each uh, individual within that couple relationship has a valid perspective. It is not our job to be the judge, jury, or executioner. It is our job to help this couple have a better, more connected, loving relationship. I am been very much looking forward to this and you are an inspiration to all of us that practice the Gottman method. And mm -hmm. I hope that you continue being in the forefront of research for everything that's happening in couples therapy, because I, I feel so confident in the research that you do that I, I'm, I'm honored to be part of the Institute and I'm, I learn from you and the Institute every day. So thank you for being on the podcast. I know you have a million things going on so that you took the time out. This feels important to me. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's important to get the word out and the work that you do on your podcast is important too. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. Take good care of yourself. You too. Thanks for tuning into the D-Spot. Find me, Dr. Dana McNeil, and my guests on social media using the links down below. Subscribe for new episodes weekly and leave a comment letting us know how and if you can relate or what topics you'd like us to cover next. See you next time. And don't forget, going to therapy is cool.